0: Hello and welcome to Therapists Talking Therapy. Thank you for downloading our podcast. My name is Martin Weaver and in a few moments I'll be introducing you to my colleague Nicholas Rose. As this is the first podcast, we'll begin by giving you a potted history of where we come from, of what our journey is. And today's podcast is set against the background of a coronavirus pandemic. And so we'll talk about uncertainty. We'll talk about existence and language and even reality. And then towards the end, we'll talk about the reflections of what we feel we've learned from our discussion. I hope you enjoy it. How do you define your background? where do you come from? Where'd you come from, Nicholas? What's your, what brings you to this place? What's your journey? What's your journey been? Work. <laughs> what, shall I give you mine? Was that help? Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, well, I just jotted down a few things. Um, you
1: record it. You are recording now, aren't you? Oh,
0: yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I recorded from the moment you, you came in.
1: Oh, okay, good. Excellent. Right, good.
0: <laughs> so when people ask me, you know, what, what do you do as a therapist or what's your journey, I'm never quite sure what to add in and what to take out. And I suspect as we go through all this process, our respective pasts, and prejudices and bigotries and all the rest of it will no doubt come out at some stage so where do i start well um i took the first call on the terence Higgins trust helpline back in 1984 mm. on the 14th of february uh and from there i worked in a number of different um roles at terence Higgins trust over a four or five year period
1: how is and it I went you were on the first call how, how yeah. Yeah, what, what, how is it that you were the one taking that first call?
0: Well, um, other people had got together before I joined and they were running out of uh, someone's fun room. Hmm. And they wanted to move out into a, a, um, an office space, which they bought in Mount Pleasant or rented in Mount Pleasant. Okay. And I joined about that time. And because I've been on the phone lines at the, the um, Port of the Polytechnic, as it was then, it's now a university. I was on the nightline student services and I applied to join Toad Siggins Trust and gave them my CV as it were. And um, I guess I can't remember the exact reason why. Maybe I was just the only one that was free at that day at that time. You're right. So I turned up and the first call was from a, um, a couple uh, whose friend was coming from America. And they wanted to know what kind of precautions they should take to look after him and look after themselves as well. Um, And at that point, at that time, the best prevention we could, uh, advice we could give to people was don't have sex with Americans because HIV didn't exist as a name at that point. Even HTLV3 didn't exist. It was gay gay cancer and no one quite knew what was causing it and how it was transmitted. So it was all a bit, a bit like we are today in some senses. Mm. You know, at least now we know here there is this virus, you can social distance and all the rest of it. Back then, we just knew that people were dying.
1: Mm.
0: And the uh, science was, was at a very early stage. Um, and I moved from there to uh, uh, the Greater London Council uh, and, and local authorities. GLC. Yeah, and I worked under Ken Livingston.
1: Right. Um,
0: <laughs> and then into the National Health Service as one of the first AIDS workers mm. um, on, on HIV and AIDS and drugs and alcohol. Um, and I was there for 11 years doing various bits and pieces. was at a regional level and then at a, a district level. I commissioned the first two, uh, they were called STD clinics in those days, sexually transmitted diseases. Now they're called sexually transmitted infections. Um, in the Royal Borough of Kingston and London Borough of Richmond. So I commissioned two clinics and they're still running the Wolverton Centre in Kingston and the Roehampton Clinic in Richmond. Um, But I left there in 97, 23 years ago because I wanted to work as a a therapist, as an individual, actually helping people directly. Mm. And that's what I've been doing, working as a a therapist, as a trainer, as a supervisor. And, uh, Using a thing called constructivist psychotherapy or constructivist philosophy, which is based upon, or I should say, that neurolinguistic programming and neurolinguistic psychotherapy is based upon a constructivist philosophy. Mm. Um, I guess the other thing I should have said perhaps is that while I was at Terence Sigmund's Trust, I was the press officer. So I had lots of media attention and interviews and things. So communication was a big thing for me. Mm. So hence doing this podcast is a, an extension of that because in 1984 the NHS didn't uh, the NHS the internet didn't exist mm. so none of this could have been done back in 1984 now we have that possibility
1: right yeah yeah
0: so what would you pick out of your past that brings you here
1: well I, um, mm. so I think I've always been a therapist. I think I was—I think I was—I was, uh, I was uh, trained as a child to be a therapist, but without a, a college to train me. And uh, and then I went into the business world, but interested in psychology, so marketing. And then I guess I reached a point when I was fed up of applying psychology to business. Uh, and just found I was always much more interested talking to people about how they were. Mm. So um, meetings were all very well, but what I really enjoyed was finding out uh, about people's lives, and uh, enjoyed having those conversations. So I left the I left the business world. Um, I wanted to be a casting director, actually, or a human rights lobbyist. So um,
0: not that there's a, a difference between the two.
1: I know. I know very very different um, casting because uh, when I worked in advertising, I was quite good at, um, at, at uh, yeah. I think I was quite good when it came to the kind of casting side of it, as to who would make a, a good um, yeah, who, who would be kind of authentic in their roles. Mm-hmm um and i did have a, an internship offered to me in los angeles but i, I sort of chickened out of that um I, I guess i was a bit worried about being one of those that headed off to los angeles to make their fortune and then ended up um
0: serving. to be seen again
1: <laughs> yeah yes so instead i did um, a human rights masters at um westminster oh my um and one lunchtime, someone gave me a counseling uh introductory introduction to counselling leaflet for Birkbeck right. and, and I absolutely loved it absolutely loved it so um and then I just couldn't stop training as a therapist after that <laughs> so um so here I am today so uh, still doing that it's what sticks with me
0: <laughs> you have a particular allegiance or model or philosophical foundation or home that you find oh. comfortable
1: well I studied uh, as an existential analyst mm-hmm. um, so what what that meant was um, well we were obviously trained in how to listen and how to talk and, and how to
0: mm.
1: um, feedback and how to explore um, but we were taught lots of philosophy and I loved it. Uh, mm. I, I loved sitting in a, in a place where um, people were interested in questions about life um, do you know that
0: you know that old joke about universities about uh, the cheapest departments in university and someone pipes up oh yes that's that would be the uh, theoretical mathematics departments because all they need is a piece of paper a pen and a, and a, and a waste paper bin and somebody <laughs> else says well philosophy isn't cheaper why well they don't need the waste paper bin <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. So, yes it, it's all valid yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all valid yes so um yeah so that's where i i come from that um yes i, I think it, there's no there's no rights or wrongs but there, there's there's what's helpful quite often and there's consequences and then there's decisions um and uh yeah i, I guess how you,
0: i how do you respond to the idea of applied philosophy because that's what i think in a sense uh, therapy is or therapy is about
1: mm. um i don't know i always think it depends on on whether somebody is interested uh talking about a theory or a, uh, a philosopher or uh, being philosophical mm. um so some people do want to ruminate, and others want to very, be very directive, I suppose, for themselves about what to, what needs to be um, sorted. Um, so I, I, I like philosophy from the point of view of it, um, uh, it. it, always reminding me that there isn't any one specific truth. <laughs> I find that very
0: supportive. <laughs> Although I guess you have values that actually direct, perhaps some truths that are more acceptable than others. Meaning? Um, well, uh, well let, let's segue, as they say, into this podcast. You know, here we are in the, I don't know, are we in the beginning, the end of the beginning, the beginning of the end, the you know, two, certainly two months into the coronavirus pandemic and I haven't got the clip here, but we can probably find it with Boris Johnson on Good Morning saying, just take it on the chin. Allow the, the virus, the disease to pass through the community, herd immunity. The consequence of which, of course, is that those that can't survive die off. Those that can survive, survive. So from a philosophical point of view, you know, we've decided, I guess, that actually we need to look after people, that we shouldn't just open up allow those people to die off and continue along our way so i guess that's what i mean by some truths being more acceptable than others
1: mm. well, I, I suppose um, uh, i uh i've watched the unfolding of things uh, seeing uh lots of different things said and then feeling quite curious as to what what they actually mean. That um, uh, I, I suspect that um, it's only only if we get to see the written instructions, the written directives, that uh, we can really know uh, what, what's meant. Um, that uh, is a watching Keir Starmer um, be very forensic it is very refreshing. I think. That not to, not to accept bluster and to accept, um, if you like, sort of meaningless slogans. But to say, well, exactly what 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 is the instruction here? What is it people are being told to to do? Um, that uh, I think often we need to return to the the very specifics. Um, yes. So I, I, I'm I'm uncertain as to. Um, And we're talking about uncertainty. I'm uncertain as to whether there is a a sort of um, uh, an overarching philosophy that's been applied by those in in government. It's it's one of those things that we'll find out 20 years down the line,
0: probably. (laughs) When they release all those papers that are hidden at the moment.
1: Well, yes, I think um, I remember when I studied uh, international law that um, When it comes to corruption, the um, average amount of time for corruption to be uncovered is 20 years. Mm. So, um, yes, things do remain hidden. Um,
0: So, So what happens then when your clients come in and they say about this uncertainty and chaos? Are they looking to you to provide those answers, those uncorrupted truths, the directions? And if they are, how do you respond to
1: that? Um, are they? I don't know. I don't know. Another,
0: you don't know how you respond, or we don't know if that's what they're asking.
1: Well, I don't know if that's what they're they're asking. Um,
0: True, none of my clients have actually come through and said, "Tell me it's going to be okay." Mm. And it's about weaving their life story and their narrative. In this stormy chaos mm. that's happening, how to keep a sense of self and a sense of direction and purpose mm. when to, to all intents and purposes, it all seems to have, if not been taken away, it seems to be kind of slipping away
1: I suppose what I keep an eye on is um I, 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 I'm, I'm always curious as to how people are responding to situations and um and then look for uh possibilities where um people might be responding because of the situation. Um, I often think about how people can um, be uh, upset with themselves for feeling in a certain way um, and and uh, and yet their context, their story can be. Huge, Um, and so how people can um, can get uh, distressed and get upset about things, um, but really they're upset about their response to it. Um,
0: You think they think they should be having a better response?
1: Yes, yeah. That um, quite often people are not very kind to themselves. About their feelings, they can be anxious about being anxious. <laughs> um, and uh, for, from an existential point of view, a philosophy perspective, um, the the potential for an underlying anxiety about us existing, and, and how that means that we're, uh, we're we're kind of driven in a way by our existence to do something with it. Um, mm. And then there's all these judgments about what's good and what's bad um, to do. So. Um, somebody may choose for example to be a therapist um, and then they might be judged as being a very nice person whereas actually they're doing something with their anxiety of living which makes sense to them Um, doesn't necessarily mean that they're a nice person (laughs) so people can be um, judged and misunderstood i think
0: but one might argue that as a therapist their choice if it is a choice is to accept existence and then to work out how best to make that existence as um, well recently I've read somewhere about how happiness is about peaks of excitement or peaks of emotion Mm. that perhaps we should talk about contentment more and being a therapist as a way of accepting that I exist and therefore what's the best way the most efficient way or the the way that speaks to me and meets my values and morals in a way that gives me a sense of contentment of, well, this is where I am.
1: Mm. Words are funny things, aren't they? Because um, uh, our language is structured, that uh, things are either positive or negative quite often. So contentment is positive, discontent Mm. is negative. and then a lot of the struggles around life are, are, are put in negative terms. So in, in mental health, all these disorders, mm-hmm. but, um, it's always about um, what's wrong and what's deficient and uh, what, uh, what are the symptoms, never about strengths and um, uh, just pure phenomena. Um, well, that,
0: but the, the whole point about problems and deficiencies, in this capitalistic world, is that if there's a deficiency, then that deficiency can be rectified and there's a financial cost to that. Mm. You know, Capitalism recognises and values that which is rare. Mm. And the idea is that success and happiness are rare things. Um, and I think that's why one of my bugbears about our profession is that we talk about treating people because I think that's very much a kind of capitalistic way of having a product to satisfy a need rather than educating people, providing perspectives and skills and knowledge for clients for themselves to make their own decisions.
1: Because mm. I like the word patience because it, it coming from the Greek of someone that's um, enduring. And that, yes, people are with us and they're enduring something until such a point that... Um, Either it's not to be endured, or so they they decide that um, they don't need a therapist to endure with anymore. But clients is a is a, a word more associated with a sort of commercial mm. business.
0: Although one might argue, patient is a word that's more associated with the medical model, and there mm. is the doctor and the patient and the thing that is wrong.
1: Mm. Yes, and so what do people want to be called in that thing?
0: They want to be respected.
1: Was another, there was another um, was it Ferrupsand? Ferrupsand? Someone who was in therapy therapist Ferrupsand. <laughs>
0: or oh, there's an isn't there? From the, oh, uh- Maybe
1: I'm thinking of an analyst. yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> from the psychodynamic of- profession.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes.
0: Someone who receives analysis.
1: Yes. Well, of course it's important because people will will take on words. So talking about chaos and uncertainty, how how language is a a way of uh, kind of providing a reassurance quite often. um, Well,
0: well, I suppose if we take it one stage a bit further back in the sense that from a constructivist point of view, language creates our reality.
1: hmm. Now,
0: is your reality one of herd immunity, or is your reality one of protecting the vulnerable mm. and so how you use those language, those words mm. you're going to create a different reality which is why i suppose we do have these different political parties they have different struggles towards different realities
1: mm. i i always think it's um intentionality that's the the important thing that um Faced with uncertainty and chaos, and yeah. um, it is natural for people to to look for solutions. Um, and but what then,
0: happens if my solution is to get rid of you, in order to achieve what I want?
1: Um, yes, but there may be a different way of achieving what you want. That um, that that you're you're wanting to achieve something means that you've ended up thinking, well, the way to do that is to get rid of him whereas uh, there may be an alternative. So the idea of herd immunity um, is a solution, um, but the intentionality behind it, um, if it's explored effectively, maybe means that it's possible without others being hurt. So, um, yeah, it's uh, intentionality I, I think is often missed. Of course, in our work, especially with couples, when somebody says something um, to a partner, well, what, what were you intending there? And often the intention and what, what's received is so completely different. Mm. Um, and and uh, yeah, if, if the conversation had been about the intentionality. Um, well, that
0: brings us down to empathy and rapport, doesn't it, understanding, how your communication is going to be received by the other person and if you're in stress or in pain then your communication your intent perhaps is to um, communicate that stress and and pain and that may very well push or direct or um, create distress and pain in in the other person Well, actually,
1: we can be empathic if we're in pain ourselves, of course, maybe.
0: Well, I don't think you can be, and that's Mm. part of the problem. You know, it's Mm. about when you have empathy, then you have an understanding about the consequences of your communication. But if you're under stress,
1: Mm.
0: then all you want to communicate and have validated is your stress.
1: Mm.
0: And if you have two people under stress at the same time, I guess that's why it takes the third person, i.e., the therapist, to create a different dynamic.
1: Uh, yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I I always think it's really difficult to, um, or to make in any any statement at all, really, and but uh, I, know, I know that if I, if I write something uh, or if a journalist asks me, then th- there's something about having top tips and, uh, but I'm just always really interested in, in the experience of the person. So I always find I'm frustrated when it comes to, um, that's why I like to be in a room with someone cause I like to find out what it's like for them. because <laughs> um then we can develop their top tips, their five top tips.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there, perhaps, is the beginnings of a different kind of um, top tipper structure, which is that self awareness.
1: Yes, starting off with oneself has to yeah, yeah. be the starting point.
0: Yeah. Um, so, in the, in some senses, you might ask people, "How are you responding to the the coronavirus epidemic pandemic?" And then ask, "So, what does that?" tell you about you where does that come from is it because this is a a a situation you're familiar with power being taken away uncertainty chaos things happening outside of your control or is this completely new and in either one of those situations Mm. then there's an understanding or the beginnings of an understanding of a this is why you're responding the way you are which then raises the issue of what has to happen for you to do this differently. Mm. A lot of my clients simply either don't have the language, the words, and that's usually men, but not exclusively. And um, I think most of them haven't been trained as we have in our own physiological responses.
1: Trained? What, what, um what what, what's what what do you mean by the the training in the physiological
0: well maybe i'm talking about me specifically now i don't know that if you went into the street and asked people to point to various organs heart spleen lungs kidneys whether they could do it or not
1: Um, and
0: therefore when they have responses um, uh, tightening in the chest raised heart rate butterflies in the stomach um, all those emotional labels Mm. would they understand that actually a lot of most of that if not all of it comes either from reactions through the spine or through the the limbic system which they can actually influence themselves Mm. rather than oh but I always do this or this is just how I am Mm. or not even having any concept in their mind (coughs) that their body has a structure has organs and that their mind, their thoughts, through their thoughts, they can influence those responses. Mm. So I don't think they are trained, formally or otherwise, in understanding that there there are processes going on here, and ones that we can intervene in.
1: Mm. Well, there's so much that we aren't trained in, uh, uh, about um, our bodies and uh, about others and, um, yes, makes me think of the education, um, well, the, 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 growing, uh, the growing focus on education and um, the importance of uh, children being taught about emotions and thinking and bodily sensations. Um, something which was, uh, I think, missing from education when I was uh, when I was young. It was the four Rs uh, and no soft skills, no emotional intelligence, all of that uh, kind of stuff. Uh,
0: in fact, uh, in fact, the, the the first time you and I probably even heard about that was perhaps the Naked Ape. Do you Remember that book that came out in the seventies.
1: Yes, I remember. Desmond Morris. didn't read
0: it, but. Um... Yeah. And there was this whole thing about how fabulous body language was. Mm. And whereas, in fact, of course, it's something very basic. Mm. But as you point out, it was never taught
1: mm.
0: formally or otherwise. Mm. And so here we have a, a system where the world is, as it were, turned upside down and people haven't got the skills enough to understand what's happening to them and to help themselves direct where they want to go. Mm. I mean, even Socrates says that we're goal oriented creatures. So even taking your existential philosophy, we're trying to find, aren't we? What are we here for?
1: Yes. Driven by that anxiety to, um, to make some meaning out of our, uh, our existence.
0: Well, maybe there's a whole podcast on this thing called anxiety. Because I don't know, is anxiety positive or negative? Or is it just a response?
1: Well, I, I, I suppose I, I think it's um, about finding finding the level of anxiety, which, uh, which is, uh, helps us in, in life.
0: So uh, I, in your world, I, is one ever free of anxiety?
1: Um, well, then I suppose it depends what the word anxiety means. <laughs> <laughs> whether it is a kind of a medical condition or whether it's a, a sensation and to what extent we're aware of it um uh and if we've all got it then is it right to use the word anxiety or is there a better word like a drive or um something something like that um or life force even um
0: Well, anxiety has been medicalized as something that's undesirable, and therefore medicated out, or hypnotherapy it out, or exercise it out, or they then don't go on to say, so what do you want to replace anxiety with if anxiety is an uncomfortable and and, undesirable response?
1: yes
0: i like your idea of life force that sounds a lot more generative uh
1: yes well um, yes
0: <laughs> that's another perhaps that's a that's a discussion for another time so given this media storm that's going on and that apparently demands that we have sound bites and there are quick tips in order to help one get through this process, this this um, pandemic better, what would your um, if not you know five special tips that work? how would you or what do you say to your clients who are maybe unable to achieve the things they want to achieve in the moment because of the chaos and the uncertainty around them at the moment?
1: Mm. um well, if someone says that they're not able to achieve what they want to achieve, I suppose my first question is usually, "What? what what's the point of 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 uh, your wanting to achieve? And what is it you're up to with that?" Huh. Um, to, to to understand again the intentionality, I suppose, to to see if um, if what what it is that they they're wanting to do can be done a different way um so do
0: you think then that as i'm hoping that after we get to a new balance with covid-19 that maybe enough people to change our culture will decide that they don't want to go back to, to the way it was their intentionality actually is that they want to spend more time with their family they want to live at a, a different kind of pace and what they've been trying to achieve up until this year, perhaps, is some kind of success or happiness. But that wasn't working. But... You,
1: you said about you're hoping that's the case. It, yeah. is, that, is that a hope for yourself or a hope for society? Or
0: Well, both. I hope for society because it's a hope for me.
1: You You, 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 um, you, you feel bound up in it, uh, unable mm. to extract yourself from it, or?
0: I want more case that um, up until January or up until lockdown, perhaps people were feeling they were fixed into the structures, the job, the commute, the need to earn X amount of money to live in a certain place, to live to a certain lifestyle. Having had two months where largely that's come to an end has given people the space to ask the question, God, taking your point about intentionality—is what am I doing this for? What have I been doing this for? What mm-hmm. was it I was expecting to achieve? Now I've had a month or two to sit back and think. Well, is it actually delivering? Because now I can do something different. Mm. Yes, I can. I can relate to that.
1: I've loved um, being at home so much and working from home and working in a in a. Primarily, different way. I mean, working online is, isn't new, but to, to suddenly um, only work online um, has, has meant uh, having to put a focus in a different way and to um, to think about things in a in a different way. Even how my chair is positioned, my floor. I'm in an old house, and my for- floor slightly slopes, so it's quite hard to get a. A, a position which feels really comfortable and uh, and, and of course you know to, to move the floor is a bit difficult so um, so a whole whole range of it but uh, yes the, the the change in structure which has been enforced externally um, has highlighted to me some some um, oppression really brought from the existing uh, system which i wasn't aware of. I suppose that, um, but of course now uh, I'm potentially oppressed in a different way because uh, <laughs> I, I've got my I've got my slightly uneven floor, which is oppressing me until such a time as something happens, which means means that I end up with a different floor. Um,
0: or maybe you just change your relationship to the floor and see its uniqueness.
1: Well, I, yes. Well, I've I've tried standing instead of sitting. Um, uh yes but we' i I suppose um I was thinking that uh our our external structures or the external demands are so powerful that that uh, as much as we uh, think we've got control um what we haven't got control over i would say is the we, we don't have uh indefinite energy uh, Mm. Mm. in order to to... change everything that we would like to to change uh, that there's always a degree of well you know we're we're limited as well so what is the balance from limit and um you know because i I need to eat so i can't say well i'm not going i'm not going to eat now because that takes up too much time (laughs) i can't do that i'm not going to go to the toilet I'm going to stop breathing because that, um, that, that's too much energy. Um, so but, there, you there, could,
0: but you could say, I don't need to do this job. I could take a job with uh, less stress, mm. potentially less income, and then maybe live in a different place.
1: Mm. But then it's knowing that the job is, is stressful. It's, often it's, uh, it's really it's only when we're in a different Place or a different position, we realise the extent of the stress. I, yeah. I really like the word oppression um, because uh, I think we, I think, I think we do oppress ourselves so often. Not everyone, uh, but I, I often think. Um, I know I oppress myself. Um, I've mm. limited myself over the years and found at times oh I could have why, why didn't I do that earlier and, and then I think that's what a lot of people that come to see me um, are oppressed in different ways. Um, I
0: think uh, in a constructivist terms we might call that limiting beliefs.
1: Limiting beliefs yes yeah. sedimentations in the existential analysis uh, field.
0: Sedimentations?
1: Yes yeah, so that we we, we we accept kind of things and they become sedimented um
0: sediment to me is that kind of stuff at the bottom of rivers and layers of the the, the sediment that just i guess yeah it's a foundation that builds up over time and then becomes unchallenging or unchallengeable
1: for me it was
0: what's at the bottom of a wine bottle now that i could go with (laughs) which would seem a good good point to, to to shift the focus slightly um If it's our intention that people listening to this are largely non-therapists, and if they stuck with us through the last over half an hour or whatever, what would your suggestion, what would you like to say to them, given this conversation? What can we provide? Is it just our thoughts or our space or anything specific that comes to your mind?
1: Uh... Um, well, I always worry about the people that don't come and see me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, yes, but, um, yeah, good. We know ourselves through our relationships with others. And so to, to, to have as many relationships, uh, with others as, as, as we, are able because we can learn so much, um, and uh, so, in, in a way, to to tell somebody to focus on a few things is is to is to turn them in on themselves in, in a way, unless you're saying we'll find a therapist, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> which I guess is what I was saying really. That if someone is if someone is um, listening and interested in this then um, then maybe that's enough to, to suggest that they should try a session with a therapist. That um, we're uh-huh. already preaching to the converted because people are interested in therapy and therefore... So that, that old thing that um, uh, a question can only exist because an answer exists. Um, mm.
0: but, I need to think about that one.
1: Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I can't remember I can't remember which bit of philosophy that was in, but, um, uh, yeah. So, so anyone that's listening to this, um, well, I hope they've had an experience of therapy. I, I, I do. Yeah.
0: Well, I wonder if people get caught up in the whole, and this is my bias or my prejudice now in the whole treatment idea and the idea that they're going to be forced to do something or experience something akin to going to the dentist or going to the doctor or whatever. Um, And I guess there has to be a balance between providing some focus as well as allowing a greater space for people to, uh, to, to connect with thoughts and ideas and experiences that perhaps they haven't connected with before to maybe even Nicholas dive into that sediment to see some of the rich stuff that's there as well as frankly, some of the crap that perhaps can be got rid of.
1: Mm. Well, yes, for for me, I always think um, that if if someone can say to a therapist, which in theory, you should be able to because you are paying for it. But if someone can say to a therapist, well, I want this, I'm not enjoying that, I would prefer this. Um, I like this, I don't like that, um, then uh, then so much can be done. Um.
0: Assuming, of course, and I, that that's the starting point, that actually, I want this or I don't want that, is where you dive into that kind of sediment. Because when you filter through that, you find that the thing you started off with isn't ultimately what you want and where you end up might be somewhere far away from your original thoughts or ideas or your original oppression to use your word
1: and then of course all of these therapeutic structures and words are sedimentations in themselves <laughs> so um whilst we hope that they're helpful um yes it's always that uh the, there's there's no specific truth in any of them just guidelines to get somewhere potentially
0: well Um, maybe it's about they are maybe that's the problem that they are perceived as being truthful and mm -hmm. there's no way out of truth and then you and I come along and say well actually language is what helps us create our truth what is it that we Mm intend? what is our intention what is it that we want to do or not do and how then are we using language or experience or our physiology to achieve that. And then when we get there, we might find we want to be somewhere else anyway.
1: Mm. Always becoming. We're always becoming Yeah.
0: Yeah. Dynamic, ever changing. And it's about what what is consistent enough. Mm. And I think I what I would want to say to non therapists listening to this is that give yourself that chance to think things that you haven't thought before either because you didn't think you could or you didn't think you were allowed to. And I know that with my clients, very often, we will pinpoint various events in their life, either yesterday or 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, that they wouldn't have assumed would still be affecting them today. And whereas they have an intent to do X, Y, and Z, they're being directed by -hmm. these events either in the past or in the very recent present Mm. and as that's unconscious once it becomes conscious then you can do something about it once you stir up that sediment then you can start searching through it
1: yes Uh, allowing ourselves the time and space for things to reveal themselves to us that have previously been Concealed somehow, or at least, I wonder if
0: I was sorry to interrupt there. I wonder if part of the fear in the last two months is that that process is what's been happening in the process of working from home, in the process of spending more time with family and partners, that things have been revealed, and maybe actually, you and I are going to see a lot of increase in our workload in the coming weeks and months. When the discomfort, the anxiety—to use your word—comes up because of this um, process, this state, the people therefore want to resolve it in some fashion.
1: Mm. Well, if if, um, if we think of um, uh, a loss, um, so that the 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 lockdown, um, in effect, meant that we we had lost life as we had understood it and the pandemic also, that um, there, there has been a, a loss there and so there, there is a, a sort of recognised sort of phenomena or um, kind of experience for, for people. Of course everyone experiences it differently, but um, of course it's usual that if there's a bereavement someone will end up uh, in, in the therapist's room. Uh, months afterwards, not the yeah. day after. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Because there's something about uh, in the in the immediate aftermath, um, there isn't really time and space or scope for wondering if if things are okay or not. It, it's it's some way down the line when you think well, actually, uh, I should, uh, why am I not happier now? What why is it that I'm still um, drinking so much wine that the main thing I see is sediment at the bottom of the bottle all of the time, um, and 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 that's when the the space opens up for therapy at least. I think, so. Maybe
0: our, our our message to the non-therapist listening to this is that we're here for you. We're here to provide that space to <clears throat> support it, guide it, perhaps on occasion, but be guided by you, the client as well or the patient as well in order to explore those intentionalities, to explore those anxieties, those limiting beliefs, in order to reframe them, in order to keep the ones that are useful, and maybe even provide some ones that might be more useful.
1: As I was thinking, um, let's talk about PTSD at the moment. Well, of course, um, technically speaking, PTSD is something which is experienced after several months of um, chronic anxiety. and so some people might wait until ptsd is diagnosed before seeking help but what i would say is if somebody is struggling and um and they think that speaking to someone might be useful well then just do it just you know don't make their diagnosis if um yeah
0: and we're here to hold that
1: yeah
0: and i think uh maybe just a point to, to end here on is that uh we can hold it that we have enough skill and ability and desire that the trauma that people are going through is something that we're clearly going through as well but that we're enabling or we're willing to engage with that in order to move on from that mm. Mm. how was that for you Nicholas? I was
1: um, uh well I wasn't certain what um what would come from us conversing um Conversations are uh, are always interesting in in the in the avenue they take, but also um, to talk about theory, I always find uh, uh, can be a bit frustrating because I I, I I want to be speaking to the person. So, but for when you said that you hoped about um, life getting back to where well, you had a hope for something, and of course that's what I was interested in. I wanted to know about your hope. And what's going on there Um, yes so uh, for me I come alive when I'm speaking to someone about their
0: uh, but here here we are in a uh, a, um, a structure that only allows that for a limited amount it's it's in a sense it's a talking about Mm. being with someone it's talking about that process
1: yes
0: only I think between the two of us we can give a flavor of that Mm. Hopefully, to the listeners as well, to provide non-therapists listening to this podcast an experience, kind of perhaps what a, what a therapeutic session might be like in in certain instances, certain parts of it anyway. Mm. Give them an experience of perhaps having therapy if they haven't had it before.
1: Because it's always it's yeah it's always problematic, isn't it? It's like uh, when you're in training and uh, you have to you have to do uh, practice sessions mm. Well, uh, of course that creates a particular dynamic yeah um, so it's, it's impossible to recreate fully sure, um, sure. But, uh,
0: but maybe if people listening to our conversations understand that actually yes there are things that we know and things we're comfortable with and there are things that we don't know to which we are equally comfortable with
1: but um a, a, I don't know about you, but I don't speak very much. Um, uh, I, yes, but uh, for, for me to be speaking here is completely different to my work, where um, my focus is completely on the other person, not um, not to be saying anything, myself particularly, uh, unless it feels really relevant. So um, uh, yeah, someone listening to us two therapists, talking might think oh would we get a word in edgeways well um, then it, it, it is different <laughs> <laughs>
0: well in some respects you see I, I would much have a balance there are some clients who i speak more mm. and some clients who i don't need to because they they have that story they have that desire to be heard mm. and i don't need to say anything and other ones i do need to 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 nudge them in certain areas and to question them because part of that sediment is about this is what I always do, and this is my story, and this is how it goes on. And sometimes I need to say, yeah, but, and what about, and perhaps if. So I think it's the intervention and the provision of a perspective, which means I probably do talk more than you do generally in sessions.
1: Yes, I suppose I think of it as dancing, and and Mm. the style and speed of the dance, Um, I I take from the person who comes to see me, some people, it might be uh, a slow dance, it might might be a very fast and energetic dance. Um, Some it might be quite technical dance, others very free-flowing, structured, unstructured, um, close, sort of separate. Um, Sometimes you can Mm. dance with someone over the other side of a dance floor, sometimes it's a slow dance and an intimate dance, it's always so different.
0: Well, there we are. That's the end of our first podcast, and we hope you enjoyed it. Join us again. That's me, Martin Weaver, and Nicholas Rose in our next podcast, where we'll be talking about ending therapy, how to know when to end therapy, the best way to end therapy, and how when perhaps stopping it suddenly might not be the best idea. We look forward to talking with you then. Take care. Thank you again for downloading Therapist Talking Therapy.